welcome to this Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum podcast. Working for difference, making business better and fairer. The DIFF series of podcasts is aimed at helping people from underrepresented groups get into and get on in the mortgage and protection industry. And to help everyone understand why genuinely prioritizing diversity is good for all of us individually, good for your business, and good for the mortgage market as a whole. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals participating and not necessarily of their respective companies, either past or present. Welcome everyone to this, the fourth in our Diff Trailblazer podcast series, where we'll be discussing diversity and inclusivity in relation to recruitment. I'm Paula John, and I'm joined today by Michelle Golunska, who for about a year has been CEO of Sesame Bancor Group, home to more than 10,000 advisors through its network and mortgage club. In her 25 years in financial services, she's managed many startups and recruited a lot of people. We're also joined by Pete Gwilliam, owner of headhunt consultancy Virtus, who for more than 20 years has recruited many people for mortgage lenders. I'd like to ask you both to tell me a little bit more about yourselves, if you can, and why you so passionately believe in increasing diversity and inclusivity in our industry. Just briefly, starting with Pete, if I may. Yeah, pleasure. Virtus, just as the name implies, has always struck out to be virtuous in its recruitment activity. And for me, my passion from the early years of learning the head and trade has, has been about finding value alignment, skill alignment and, and behavioural fit. And I think that encapsulates diversity in many respects. But more importantly, encapsulates the piece that has to come with it, which is inclusivity and belonging and equality. And this is the moment to really push into those areas. Thank you very much, Pete. And you know, I didn't know that's why you were called Virtus. I hadn't associated it with virtuosity. So I'm learning things already. And Michelle, if you could talk a little bit about yourself and your passion in this area, please. Yeah, so I obviously a female leader. And as a result, I've had lots of support through my career from people who have been very generous in giving time and sharing their experiences. And I would like to be someone who also helps others in the same way. So from a Sesame Bankal Group perspective, you know, our work touches the lives of millions of people in the UK. Um, so as a sector and an employer and commercially, we need to reflect the society we serve and understand their wants and needs. And that includes the wants and needs of people who work for us and giving them the opportunity to develop and progress. And I'm passionate about levelling that playing field and ensuring that people in the UK do have a sense of belonging in the workplace. So how are we doing as an industry? How do you think uh, financial services in general and the mortgage industry in particular, how far have we come in terms of improving that diversity when we're thinking about recruitment and development of people, say over the last five years? There's been some real positive steps, but there's still much progress to be made. In the last three to five years, my experience at Aviva and SBG, I've seen a focus and an increased awareness and representation surrounding gender and sexual diversity. And at SBG, we've seen more women join and stay in the business. And we've got women in senior roles. We've got 50% of our senior leadership team are women and 40% of our board. And this is representative of the UK population demographics, where 51% are female, but it's not representative of the financial services industry generally. And in terms of BAME representation, I'm afraid I can't give you our stats on that because we don't currently have any. And I suspect that as a business, we're not alone in this. And this is a real area for focus and improvement in terms of understanding data and being able to look at targets and, and managing those. 
From a network, SPG has 25% of our mortgage advisors are female. And I think from recent FCA data, 17% of approved individuals are females in 2019. And that's unchanged since 2005. So I think there's much more to do. And whilst we can see some positives around focus on gender, we need to see more in other minority areas. Yeah, great news, obviously, that the female bit is getting better, but there's a lot more work to do. Pete, what's your feeling, or not your feeling, what have you observed over the last five years as a recruiter? Where are we making progress? Where do we need to concentrate now? I echo a lot of what Michelle said there, the, the Women in Finance Charter in particular, has clearly created momentum and and, and progress. I think what we've just got to be really conscious of is one, the regulator, the FCA, clearly doesn't feel perhaps the sector's coming up. It's put a couple of warning shots across the bowers of the industry that it's going to add conduct risk questions for managers and may well include supervisory powers to actually sharpen the focus. But I think this is a long-standing cultural change process. The gender agenda has started, and that's absolutely welcome. But this is now pushing into much deeper cultural change to actually get fame representation at the levels that our national demographic suggests we should be aspiring to. You know, clear numbers out of mainstream lenders, specialist lenders, indicate that the female balance of face-to-face sales teams has improved quite significantly in that five-year period. However, the fame numbers are very, very much below the proportionate representative aspirations we should have, probably circa 5 to 6%. And I think that is where a lot of what we can see has come from putting focus on women in finance. We now need to adjust and bring that cultural change to really ask ourselves those quite uncomfortable questions about people from BAME backgrounds. Absolutely. I mean, it's very telling, isn't it, that the BAME data is so hard to even get hold of that would be helpful to start with but obviously that we assume there's also one of the problems is an element of bias so if we unconscious or possibly conscious in some places but if we as employers carry unconscious bias how can we change our recruitment processes to overcome that so i'm thinking about you know anonymized cvs that sort of thing what actually works pete in your experience I think it's really difficult to talk in isolation about little process steps i'm all for taking steps towards the change process, but you can anonymize CVs. You can accept the fact that research shows that identical CVs, one named Adam, one named Mohammed, gets a completely different response. And of course, we need to call that out, weed that out and take that out of processes. However, bias, conscious inclusion, however you want to address it, remains then throughout the remainder of the assessment cycle. And then most importantly, the experience of belonging subsequent to being hired. And and you can't address the one without addressing the other, hence hence this whole consciousness of cultural change. And, you know, one of the big passions I've got, certainly in the the space that I operate in, is that we do have to, we have to modernise, we have to really challenge assessment processes we've used before and do that in tandem with how we source and broaden, widen, deepen how we source, but actually concentrate on skills and lived experiences rather than necessarily aspects to people's backgrounds that we just feel comfortable with because we've seen that before and hence we get the same outcomes if we're not very careful. 
Michelle, as an employer, do you take that point? Do you agree with Pete? I mean, it's a big change, isn't it? Not hiring on past experience. Yes, it is. And I think just picking up on Pete's point around bias, I mean, we all have bias. You know, it exists in our businesses, in ourselves. And it's actually the really important thing is understanding where it exists and where it drives a behaviour that you're not seeking. Um, So that's really critical. I think in terms of recruitment, you know, there will always be occasions where you need to recruit for specific skills and experience. But in the main, there is always the opportunity, especially if you take time to think through your business plans and understand the roles that might be emerging either through attrition, known attrition, or, you know, emerging roles that can develop in the business, for you to take the time and actually take more efforts to seek candidates who maybe are not from your usual pools that you search in. Because if you continue going back to the same place, you'll continue getting the same type of candidates. And I think recruiting for potential and behaviours, knowing that you can train on some of the direct skills is a kind of mind shift change that we need to do. But so often we're struck by time pressures. So therefore, the, the candidate that we're seeking is actually the person who has done the job before and can easily slot into the business. But, you know, in, in terms of looking at things to do, you mentioned about, you know, what are, what are some of the things that you can do? Well, you know, it's not just about who are you trying to attract, you know, how attractive are you to the candidates? And so making sure that you reword your job ads and job descriptions in a way that is more attractive to a wider, more diverse pool of people, advertising within a broader reach, maybe looking at minority publications or recruitment firms. I do support blind applications, actually. And I think, you know, let's think about how diverse are your interview panels. And if someone's going to come and work for you, they're likely to look at your website. How much does your website demonstrate your culture? And so, you know, really to Pete's point around you need to recruit, that's one aspect. But retention is really key. So that sense of belonging, the cultural fit is really, really important. Yeah, thanks, Michelle. I'd like to pick up two strands from that, if I may. One which we'll come back to is the cultural one. The first one you mentioned was time. And obviously it is harder for employers. It takes more time to go and find someone outside the normal pool. And it's difficult recruiting, isn't it? So are employers in our sector just being lazy? Do they need more of a push in order to go and find the different sort of people? Or is there something about, I don't know, notice periods? Should notice periods be longer? Is that an issue? Would that help? Pete, as a recruiter, what do you think? I mean, you obviously have people who come to you and say, I want someone to do this job. I bet they never say, take your time go and explore. But you could do push back to them and say you should have a shortlist that has one woman, one main person on it out of four, for example. Yeah, absolutely. I think we can all set ourselves targets within what we'd like to deliver. It's then the consciousness of uh, and the predictability sometimes of, of, of what you're looking to find. Does that exist? And if you can identify that very early in your search and you know that that mix doesn't exist from the data that you hold, that's when you immediately flag the need to widen and challenge yourself to source more widely. There are lots of hows. Some of them do need time, but some of them actually are quite simply fixed. Champion Challenger shortlist is is one of the things that as a headhunter, you would love to have the opportunity to do with every employer because there's very often hiring decisions taken and you know wholeheartedly that there's candidates that you're close to that weren't even invited to the table to, to have a conversation. And there is that opportunity, particularly if it's a white male dominated shortlist, to actually pick up the phone to someone who's got an established talent pool network and actually say, challenge me, bring me something different. But I think the real key, and, and I think there's no, no coincidence, the bigger businesses, the better resourced businesses, the, the businesses that have a wider internal talent pool are waking up to the idea of talent pool and having 
people, whether it be through an academy star concept or whether it be through cross-learning, cross-development or succession planning, mentoring and other effective strategies, are recognising that you can bring diversity through to be ready to be given that moment, the first opening that comes. And that type of prioritisation, I think, is what I've seen trends of, certainly in other industries, to certainly challenge getting more women into senior management and executive level. And I think the logical follow-through of that is to do exactly the same in the BAME area. I'd like to move on to the cultural piece that uh, Michelle mentioned and throw in an interesting stat that millennials will make up 75% of the workforce by 2025 which makes me feel very old. I was reading a study by Deloitte which found that millennials view traditional diversity like age, gender, race, etc. as a given but now consider cognitive diversity, thoughts, values, philosophies, approaches, etc. as an equally important organisational component. Wow. So um, if we haven't even got the first bit right as employers, we're not going to be attracting 75% of the workforce who are millennials. So how can we go about making our work cultures more attractive to those people? Well, I think each generation has different priorities. And as an employer, we need to be able to understand those. But in terms of coming to finding an employer, there are different things that millennials look for. So cash doesn't always rule in terms of employment decisions for millennials. They equally value company culture, as you've discussed, and also sort of special benefits. But how might they come to you? So they're more likely to search online and look at your website, to look at your um, anything that comes out from your company in terms of your tone of voice and what's important to you. But also look for reviews from ex-employees. So that's really important. And, and when they're looking at websites, they prefer mobile-friendly websites. So there's some so just difference in terms of how people might be researching and looking at you as an employer. But flexibility in working is a very, very important thing for millennials and also the opportunity to create a career path. So I think I was reading some data, actually, that said that one of the core reasons for millennials leaving an employer is the fact that they didn't see that they had the right form of professional career growth and development opportunities within the business that they're in. And most of them, when they were moving jobs, were actually leaving companies. So making sure that you have those types of facilities available and you're actively supporting in that way is critical. So investing in employee training in mentoring and development and also looking at work-life balance. So, uh, you know, many millennials are now starting families and looking at working couple support. So, you know, there's a shared responsibility in terms of childcare, shared responsibility in terms of earning and flexibility around working. So I think it's really, really important that we understand this is the growing community in terms of people who are going to be of working age. And we need to make sure that we have a culture that they are keen to um, embrace and they think meets their own ethics and values. Interesting, isn't it? And then you throw in the whole pandemic thing and people working from home which presumably is going to be more desirable for them going forward as well so Pete when you're talking to candidates or indeed to employers about what they're looking for have those parameters changed in terms of flexibility and appreciating what people value yeah I think I think humanity in general has uh, has had the chance to reflect on itself hasn't it in the last 12 months for me I, I I I totally agree with all Michelle's suggestions there, but I'd like to just perhaps look at it from one other different perspective. The millennials, certainly being surrounded with three of them in my household, millennials look at things through this different lens and, and are actually naturally inquisitive and, and, and actually naturally quite challenging. And we have to just be really conscious that just by how we position data, uh, for instance, data around female representation in boardrooms, but particularly linked to counting NEDs in that, that we miss the fact that the millennials will be looking at our executive teams and our senior management teams and looking for people like 
them, people that think, behave, and challenge businesses like them because ultimately they are the people that set the cultural tone and, and, and the operational rhythms and all of the, the actual language sets that flow through businesses. NEDs don't do that. So whilst NEDs are a vital part of risk management, they aren't particularly a point of cultural change. And I just think when we come to talk about things like measurement, we just have to not use token counts that, in my opinion, millennials will see through. Millennials want to touch, feel, see things in ways that, you know, of our generation, my generation, perhaps we didn't. One thing that I know some companies in our sector are implementing, which helps not, I think, remember the Neds from the piece, but senior management to understand millennials, is reverse mentoring. Michelle, have you had any experience of that or what do you think of the whole concept? I love the concept, actually, and I've had limited experience. So I've done it about with about three different people. Most of my mentoring it isn't that, but I want to do more of this. And I think, you know, this is a really valuable type of mentoring for us to explore and to become more commonplace. I think you know, particularly because it enables you as, as senior leaders to connect with a younger generation, um, understand more about, you know, how to attract and retain talent in with them. And, and equally, you know, if it's fame or if it's gender or other minority, we would, you know, understanding more about how they feel and, and what attracts them, what's important to them. And I think, you know, you just get a much better understanding of the issues that are faced there. And I was researching this in some detail the other day because, I, you know, I am actually passionate about trying to do more of this. And I think PwC has 122 millennials mentoring 200 partners and directors worldwide. So, you know, there are lots of examples of companies that are already doing this and seeing the value of this in terms of influencing their company culture, their customer proposition, their stance around ESG and other such things. That it's, um, I think it's, it's absolutely um, a really, really important thing that we should be doing more of moving forward. Brilliant. So call out there for more reverse mentoring in the mortgage industry, please. I'd like to move on now to a slightly different but and yet always connected subject, and that is the subject of language. You just mentioned ESG. I'm ashamed to say I don't know what that stands for. And in general, do you think that the fear of getting the language wrong when we're talking about diversity and inclusion prevents some people from even engaging in conversations about it? I'll give an example. An event we ran on the subject recently, I referred to as I have in this podcast, unconscious bias. And one of the delegates gently pointed out that they preferred the term conscious inclusion. I hadn't heard the term conscious inclusion before, and there might be some people listening to this podcast going, oh my God, call yourself a founder member of DIFF, that's appalling. And I felt quite anxious that I might have caused offence. Is this a big problem in the subject uh, when we're talking about these subjects, and how can we get around that? Well, first of all, just coming back to reverse mentoring, but flipping it slightly differently, 360 degree appraisals are other things I'm more familiar with, uh, um, and 360 degree referencing, i.e., getting the perspective of someone from above, across and down the line to understand how they operate in a business. When you're asking yourself the question, am I inclusive? Most people by default think they are. We don't really ever examine it objectively. And I think it's really important that we're all able to be open enough, vulnerable enough, prepared enough to ask ourselves, really, is that inclusiveness enough? And I think only by accepting that you'll trip over slightly the wrong use of, of language and make maybe the odd uncomfortable, confused acronym of uh, LGBTQ+. Plus. Those things are going to happen, but we shouldn't lose sight of if the intention is good and we are striving to make ourselves more inclusive and, and unwind this default view that we are 
It surely can't be too uncomfortable. It shouldn't cause anxiety. Michelle, do you agree? No, I wholeheartedly agree. And I, and I think that we need to kind of be forgiving where people are desperately trying to understand and educate themselves. And I, I know I've personally been here and I know when we were launching an inclusion council at SBG, we had many of our colleagues come and say, I, I care passionately about this, but I, I, I'm not informed enough and I'm worried if I say something, I might offend someone if I use the wrong term or language. You know, we need to have safe spaces for people to be able to talk and, and, and be a little forgiving on that. And actually through the education of others, you know, understand the right terminology or the terminology that doesn't offend. I'll just go back, if I may, on the ESG, though, in case I feel like I'm a jargon person now. It's environmental, social, corporate governance. So it's really around measuring sustainability and societal impact of an investment in a company or business. So this is around, you know, green making sure that carbon emissions or or making sure that you do some things in a way that are looking after the society environment. And this is a very, very big thing that, you know, obviously many of us are, are now really concerned about. Thank you very much for explaining that. And I feel embarrassed that I didn't know what it stood for, but that's a great description. Thank you. Moving on and back, we have touched on targets. Are you in favour of targets or quotas or some people prefer to stick to just benchmarking? Obviously, there's some concerns that uh, targets can produce tokenism. The tide seems to be changing on this, though. Do you welcome the tide changing and do you like targets? Yes, I'm in favour of targets because I think, you know, in the normal course of running a successful business, you would have a plan and you would have targets. And that gives you an ability for, you know, you and your team to focus on the important things, to make sure you prioritise effort in that way and you invest in the successful delivery of of that target. So, but but what I would say is I'm not in favour of having targets unless you yourself have looked at your own business to understand. And we talked earlier about unconscious bias. You need to understand what it is that you're trying to achieve. And that may be very different for for many different businesses. And what some, you know, if you want to improve representation of a certain minority, that might be different for others. So set your targets according to your own business performance and your own ambitions. And targets are really important and they give you an area for focus, but they must be measurable. And one of the problems that we've had recently is just... You know, we want to do some things, but actually we don't have the data to tell us where we are at this point without going out and doing a wide survey, which we have now done. But, you know, understanding your current position is really important, mapping that and then understanding how you map successful delivery against those targets, including feedback as well as data. And having targets, as I said, is important, but without having the real commitment and shared learning within the business, particularly through leaders who are responsible for the recruitment and performance management, reward and career progression of others, they won't work. So you need to measure not only, say, in recruitment, how you you seek to hit your representation targets, but also how many people stay. Because actually, if they come into the business and the culture isn't attractive, they will leave. So understanding why people leave your business is is a really good indicator. So, Pete, if retention is an indicator, how do you ensure as a recruiter that the cultural fit for your candidate and the employer is right well in 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 very simple terms it's value alignment most things uh, come back to are you in a place are you in a team are you in a business that is going to allow you to bring your best self to work because if you can find uh, the assessment methods the the actual conversational transparencies that are required to actually get someone to reveal their moral compass even their value set and you understand it in, intrinsically how a culture aspires for its own values. When you can align them and the person can bring the best cells to work, that's where potential gets released and, and, and untapped. And, you know, in every sense of the word, that's where I, 
I just find we can't approach it in isolation with looking at one step of a process because, as Michelle quite rightly points out, until we clearly understand our cultures and we clearly understand what our cultures are aspiring to be, setting measurements are a little bit premature in some respects. However, that doesn't stop the fact that we should start with some very base level principles. Why shouldn't there be shortlists have equal representation of 50-50 male-female at all levels? Well, only because we've, we've never put in place processes to ensure that's a necessity. Yes, so do we need more legislation to force greater diversity in the workplace? I'm thinking of the, the, the Women in Finance Charter suggests that people should have the aim to link senior pay to progress on DNI, for example, but that's a, just a suggestion. It's not law. Where do you stand on that, Pete? Do you think more legislation? Well... I'm not, I'm not a favour of legislation per, per se in this area because it's actually just morally the right thing to do before you come to actually what the legal compass is and indeed the business performance opportunities are. However, I do think if firms don't take uh, the importance and the significance of this seriously, maybe you need more, uh, more stick than, than maybe the carrots that are there to be morally doing the right thing and to improve your business performance through it. But I, I come back to my point about Ned. I just have this slight feeling, and, and I'll just use a couple of numbers to illustrate. In the FTSE 100, the percentage of female Neds is now at an all-time high of 41%. However, the percentage of female executives has risen only to 13%. And I just worry that soon as legislative targets arrive and all of that area becomes microscopically looked at, people just find little cheats that I think are cheats to actually undermine the actual real sentiment of this is about changing culture and changing corridors of power and, and, and asking ourselves very differently about how businesses. Interesting. So more legislation could actually result in more tokenism for want of a better word. Michelle, where do you stand on that, Michelle? Well, I welcome it if it drives for um, a better culture in firms. And and I think the FCA and other regulators are using it as a way of evaluating firm culture and, and conduct. So equity, diversity, inclusion, uh, you know, levelling the playing field, having representation and and giving people a sense of belonging all themselves are, are good things to have and do in terms of making sure that your business is uh, you know financially successful it kind of reduces the risk of groupthink and encourages innovation and, and actually ensures that the kind of propositions and products that you are developing are more reflective of the UK society. So I'm in favour of it. I think it adds focus and uh, ensures that, you know, we're pushing for the right things. Thank you very much for that. Now, we're running out of time. So if you could offer our listeners one piece of advice or a tip to take away from today's podcast, what would it be? Well, be vulnerable, be inquisitive. Broaden your mind, broaden your sourcing, broaden your outlook. It doesn't hurt. The anxiety that you might feel quickly subsides by the fulfilment you get from doing the right thing. Thank you, Pete. And last word to Michelle, please. I think just, you know, you can have passion for this and and, and you can be surrounded by others who share that as well. But some of this is quite hard. You know, you do need to do the research um, to understand where bias, um, unconscious or otherwise, exists within your business and to take steps to try and um, eliminate it or be aware of it so that you do encourage more kind of open discussion, that you do look at your policies and procedures. And I think I've said before that 
you know, if this was a race, it's not a 200 meter sprint where you kind of say, okay, that's what we're going to do. And I I can do this and and I hit the target. It is a, it's a relay. Everyone in your business kind of handing the baton through. So if this starts from a top down or a bottom up or through the organization, this has to be something that's understood. Everyone's educated and supported, particularly leaders who have a real impact on the day-to-day lives of most employees. And if their culture isn't a fit to the business culture, Culture, then this won't work. So it's a constantly, you know, you have to constantly keep going at this and um, and you will see the results and it will be successful and your business will be more productive for it. And you'll have people who feel a much greater sense of belonging and therefore, you know, bring them their whole selves to work and feel respected and valued for that. And ask others for help. Lots of people, this is kind of a club and country thing. People are very, very keen to help other businesses to progress with this and share their experiences. Michelle Galinska, Pete William, that's all we've got time for. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for listening and make sure you tune in next time for the latest Diff podcast. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. If you have enjoyed this episode and want diversity and inclusion to have as wide an audience as possible, make sure you share with your friends and colleagues and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode.